0: On occasion, we've been looking at the book of Colossians together for some time now. We are now definitely on uh, the home straight, as it were, and we're coming today uh, to look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4. So if you turn to Colossians 4, we're going to look in particular at verses 5 and 6, uh, but just to get the flow, we'll read from verse 2. I'm going to be reading from the... ESV translation of the Bible, that will be on the screen above. You may be looking at an an NIV translation of the Bible or a different translation. If that is the case, then as we go through, we might look at some of the different uh, phrasing, some of the different words that different translators have used uh, when approaching this this passage, which obviously originally wasn't written in English. So let's read verse 2 onwards. "'Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving.'" At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the Word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of the time, that your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Just in everyday conversation, uh, there's perhaps been a trend around for a little while, I'm guessing it's originated from the United States, but I could be wrong, is that when someone is telling you something important, they say their phrase, there's other things that they could say, but they kind of, they've said the main piece, and so they end their statement with yada, 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 or something like that. Now, it would be possible, but it would be wrong, to read this passage in the same way. Well, surely by now, Paul has made his his primary points about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to live a life that is uh, by grace, be saved by grace, not kind of be under old rules and regulations and legalism. Surely he's made his main points, and this is the equivalent of someone in conversation nowadays kind of saying, yada, 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 be nice, yada, yada. Wise, yada yada, seasoned with salt, etc., etc., and so on and so forth. That would be a misunderstanding of what Paul is saying here. He's not just running out of things to say and kind of just glibly commenting on, oh, this and that. This is a fundamental part of this letter. He began by saying, I'm praying that you'd bear good fruit in every good work that you might know the full revelation of God's wisdom and understanding. That is what he said right at the beginning, like one bookend there. And now we're coming to the bookend at the other end, at the other end of the letter, just as important of stuff uh, that we've looked at earlier on. So kind of a brief summary, I suppose, of, of the letter, I've been particularly picking up from uh, chapter 3. We've been looking, how do we relate with Jesus? On what footing do we relate with Jesus? on the basis of grace, not law and rules, Uh, how do we then relate within the church? We've been looking at uh, relationships between each other in the church. We've moved on uh, to look at things like relationships in marriage and in family and in the workplace. So Paul just can't help but be tremendously logical. And he he would be missing something. This letter would be lacking if it didn't now address... This important matter of how do we relate to outsiders? That's the word that's used there in the scriptures. Basically, how do we relate to non Christians? How do we relate to people who haven't yet come into relationship with Christ? That's the fundamental and important thing that Paul wants to address in this part of the letter. Because this is so important, he's been saying continue steadfastly in prayer, don't give up praying. Pray for me that a word might be given to me, that a door might be opened so that more people, more people who are currently outside of God's community are brought into relationship with him. This is so vital. Please pray for me. That's what Paul has been saying. But it doesn't all rest on him. And it's not just a matter of us doing our duty and praying. He's saying, yes, pray for me that I might know how to speak. But this also involves all of us. And so he goes on in verse five and six. Conduct yourself wisely toward outsiders. We're going to begin, we're going to look in a moment at a couple of principles then that Paul outlines here about how we, as believers in the Lord Jesus, are to relate to outsiders. But before we do that, we need to take a step back and consider things from a a kind of wider perspective for a moment. To see this, if if our main question that we want to answer today is how do we relate to outsiders, the first point to make, and forgive me for stating the obvious, is we are to relate to outsiders. And sometimes the church can be, uh, through history or particular churches, can have come to occasions where it feels a bit demoralised. Church gets into a, a sort of survival mentality. We look back to glorious days, we consider today, we consider the the kind of spiritual climate in the world, in the country around us, and we think, ah, this doesn't seem so nice. The days are evil. It even says that in scripture. The days are evil. And so uh, it can be that a church can feel a tendency just to want to get into a bit of a holy huddle. Of course, we want to look after each other and build one another up, but sometimes that's Oh, it's dark outside, you don't want to go out there. Let's just stay together, let's just stay, wrap our arms around each other, be in a huddle, stay close, because you never know what's going to happen outside. There's danger. And um, the expectation can develop that the, the faithful few will get fewer and fewer. And so we, you know, we look back to the New Testament, we look back to the glorious days of Acts and what was happening in the church there, and we think, wow, fantastic. Oh to have been around then. Oh to have experienced what it must have been like to hear Peter preach when three thousand people were saved and added into the church. And we can think, oh, they were glorious days, I'm sure. Or even look back in church history recently and think, wow, there's been some there've been some real high points, there've been some real great times where people have really come in droves, real anointed preaching, and just left, right, and centre, people coming into relationship with Jesus. And then the expectation can be, but really, things are kind of now just dribbling, dribbling out, running out, leaking. One day, thank goodness, we'll be raised up to heaven, and uh, we'll be with him forever. Until then, I guess we just have to soldier on, we have to make do, and let's just stay in this little huddle. That is sometimes what um, uh, the church historically uh, has been into. I remember reading uh, a newsletter, not in Sheffield, not about this church, but uh, from my previous hometown, reading a church bulletin, which said something along the lines of, "Isn't it great that in today's day and age, the church is surviving?" What is that about? The church is not called to survive. The church is not called just to uh, just to keep things ticking over and, and look after ourselves until that great and glorious day. No. The church is to thrive. And so the church has a call not just to relate with each other, but to relate to outsiders. It's not that God doesn't want that survival mentality to creep in. So let's see what God is like to start with. We can think of God as though he were some kind of clockmaker and that he designed and built a clock. And he wound that clock up And he set it on the side and he left it entirely alone. And we can think that was, God is like that in terms of creation. He's made the whole world, he's made the whole universe, he's made us, he wound everything, he got everything going, and then he just left it to the side. And what happened before not too long is that, in a sense, that clock started to go seriously awry, even in in the Garden of Eden, where the first. Uh, two people that God made. What was God's reaction to that situation? Well, let's, let's look in Genesis. Let's, again, let's keep a big scope, a big perspective uh, on, on what God is trying to tell us today. Genesis 1.26. This is where God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. It's interesting there that God is speaking in the plural. He's not saying, um, you know, sometimes royalty or kings or monarchs will say we when they really mean I. We know God, revealed in Scripture, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. We've not got time, uh, really, in this life or beyond to fully get our heads around that one. But there's God saying, let us make man in our own image. It was not to satisfy any need on God's part, but God desired to make us in the same image as himself in order to relate. God, three in one, enjoying for eternity past a a wonderful, intimate, loving and supportive relationship within God. God then creates the whole of mankind and his intention and desire is that we, as that the human race, is brought into that community, that relationship with God. But, as we said, something went seriously awry. Adam and Eve were told not to eat. He was some kind of clockmaker, and that he designed and built a clock. And he wound that clock up, and he set it on the side, and he left it entirely alone. And we can think that was... God is like that in terms of creation. He's made the whole world, he's made the whole universe, he's made us, he wound everything, he got everything going, and then he just left it to the side. And what happened before not too long is that, in a sense, that clock started to go seriously awry, even in in the Garden of Eden, with the first uh, two people that God made. What was God's reaction to that situation? Well, let's Let's look in Genesis. Let's, again, let's keep a big scope, a big perspective uh, on, on what God is trying to tell us today. Genesis 1.26. This is where God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. It's interesting there that God is speaking in the plural. He's not saying, um, you know, sometimes royalty or kings or monarchs will say we when they really mean I. We know God, revealed in Scripture, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. We've not got time uh, really in this life or beyond to fully get our heads around that one. But there's God saying, let us make man in our own image. It was not to satisfy any need on God's part, but God desired to make us in the same image as himself, in order to relate. God, three in one, enjoying for eternity past a a wonderful, intimate, loving, and supportive relationship within God. God then creates the whole of mankind and his intention and and desire is that we, as the human race, is brought into that community, that relationship with God. But... As we said, something went seriously awry. Adam and Eve were told not to eat the fruit from a certain tree in the garden. But the serpent, the the devil comes to tempt, to cause doubts in their minds. And so they do eat. Now God is a holy God. And so we see in Genesis 3, 23, what his reaction was after Adam had sinned. And it said in Genesis 3:23 therefore the lord god sent him out from the garden of eden or in the NIV i think it mentions being banished sent out that's what a holy god had to do he couldn't have relationship with people who had been, become disobedient and sinful so suddenly the whole of the human race has just become outsiders god had intended this relationship but suddenly they're all outside. So did God just sit back, observe that something had gone wrong, and decide, right, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let's just get in the huddle. The days are evil out there. It's dark. It's cold. We don't want to do that. We don't want to go there. People have become outsiders. Let's leave that. Let's leave them. Maybe we'll start a new project, a new venture, which will hopefully go right this time. What was God demonstrating right there. But he was sending them out. He was banishing them. But how do we see him respond thereafter? Hebrews 1 tells us. Well, the whole Bible tells us, really, but we'll look at Hebrews Hebrews 1, where we're told this right at the beginning. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he ap- appointed the heir of all things. So the story of history is that God intervenes. That God didn't just leave the human race to eternally be outside relationship with him. God intervenes at many times and in many or various ways by speaking through certain prophets or leaders, but then ultimately in sending Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, came to represent the Father. How did he relate to outsiders? Well, he came, as we've been singing, he stepped down. He came to us. His attitude was not that he was going to keep a grasp of his equality with God and stay at a distance. The Son of God came to us as outsiders. So we we see examples of how Jesus interacted with people For example, in the book of John, John chapter 4, we see there how Jesus uh, interacted with a woman of Samaria. Jesus was by a well, and um, it says in verse 7, John 4, verse 7, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That was the understanding, that was the climate, that was the expectation of the time. Here's this woman of Samaria, Jesus, a Jew, would not have been expected to have anything to do with her whatsoever. on account In this situation, on account of her being a woman and on account of her being a Samaritan. So Jesus kind of bucks all those social trends and initially on the basis of wanting a drink, actually interacts with someone who would have been regarded as an outsider. What happens as this situation unfolds is quite phenomenal. You can read about it at your leisure. We won't go into every detail now. But let's just see in John 4, verse 39. What was the result of Jesus' interaction with this Samaritan woman? It says there, John 4, 39, "...many Samaritans from that town believed in him." Because of the woman's testimony, he told, me that, uh, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. Not just saviour of a certain ethnic group, saviour of the world." So, all because Jesus was thirsty, this conversation develops, which results in a whole village coming to know Jesus as the Savior. Jesus who was reaching out, Jesus who was interacting, Jesus who was going to the outsider. Kind of against all expectation, bringing good news to them. And so, as we see, as Jesus dies, he is resurrected he ascends to heaven, he's glorified there, he sends the Holy Spirit. The early church then is carrying on his mission to go to the outsider. Now they need a bit of help. Because, to be honest, there is still there, even in Acts, this tendency to shrink back to the people that we know best, the ethnic group that we are comfortable with and that we associate with. And there is a man in Acts 10 called Cornelius, who is not of Jewish origin. He's not of that ethnic group, but he's a man who has been seeking after God. Peter is a Jew, and God gives him a dream. And in that dream, we see here in Acts 10, that it's as though a sheet is descended from heaven. On that sheet, a lot of animals, all of which would have been regarded as unclean to a Jew. In other words, something not to be eaten, something not to be touched. And so in this dream, Peter is at first shocked that there is a voice that comes to him. Verse 13, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord. For I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. And so... Peter was pondering, what does this mean when there was a knock at the door? Can you come? God has sent us to you so that you can come to Cornelius' home to tell us how we can be saved. Before that dream, and as he was pondering that dream, had he not had that dream, Peter would have probably been a bit hesitant. Well, do I go? This, I'm not quite sure God would want me to go to these outsiders. But the Holy Spirit is revealing right here... No, don't call unclean what God has called clean. And so Peter goes, and again, salvation comes to that whole household. And so the, 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 the testimony of the church, bit by bit, in Acts, is that they are a company of people who are reaching out, not just to Jerusalem, not just to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, going to the outsider, bringing the gospel of good news to the outsider. It's been said... Uh, that the church is the only organization that exists for the benefit of its non-members. Now, I don't actually know if that is true, because there may be many human organizations that would purport to exist for the benefit of outsiders and those who don't belong. But it is certainly true of the church. Existing for God's glory, existing to benefit and bless Non-members To see um, people who may currently be outside of a relationship with God brought in to relationship with him. That is God's overarching pur- purpose and principle ever since Adam and Eve stepped out of relationship with him. God has come. God has been intervening. God stepped down in order to lift the likes of you and me into relationship with God, that we might no longer be outsiders, but in relationship with Him. So we need to see these verses here in Colossians through that perspective. God wants to draw people to Himself, and God doesn't want a church to, to develop into a survival mentality, where it's just a case of maintaining the program. Like God has got plans and purposes. For us as a people... Not just to be kind of talking about the great old days, but today and in the future, heading on to see more and more of what God wants to do on his mission. The fact that the church has a mission is because God has a mission to bring people, to draw people to himself. So what are the two principles we want to look at from this passage in Colossians? The first is this, wise conduct. How do we relate to outsiders? Well, important principle is wise conduct. Wise behavior, says there in verse 5, conduct yourselves wisely or be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. There's a call and a responsibility on our lives to live in such a way that one, God is honored and that two, people are provoked to ask questions. There's an interesting distinction here. When Paul asks them to pray for him, he asks them to pray in such a way that he would be given words so that he would know how I ought to speak. Paul's mission is to preach. That is the call of God. How he ought to speak, that these doors might be opened to him. Interestingly, in verse 6 then, he's speaking to all of us who believe in Jesus and it says there, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So Paul is planning to speak. He's saying to all of us to be prepared to know how to answer. So if we took uh, what is happening now, i.e. the preaching of the word, as our model for like personal evangelism, we might be a little bit missing the point. Preaching kind of in a one-to-one conversation to someone who is perhaps entrenched in apathy is rather like plunging into a pool of water with your clothes on, regardless of the temperature. Um, You get a nasty shock, you get a nasty reaction if the water is absolutely freezing. So it's saying here, conduct yourself wisely. We don't want to kind of hurl mini-sermons at people in some kind of uh, monologue, regardless of how warm they are to God and the gospel, we don't want to just lob them like some hand grenade at friends and strangers, causing people to run to cover or come back with ammunition of their own to pulverise you. <laughs> it says in, uh, in Proverbs uh, chapter nine and verse. 7. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. So whoever corrects a scoffer or a mocker gets himself abuse. So what we say, how we conduct ourselves, how we behave, in a sense, needs to be tailor-made to, where is this person at? My family member, my friend, my colleague, my neighbor. Where, Where are they at? And not just to kind of lob today's sermon at them, but to see what they need to hear. That said, a question might arise in your mind, well, does being wise, therefore, just mean be extremely cautious? Only say something if God gives you red letters in the sky as permission to share something about your own faith in the Lord Jesus. Well, well, no, because in here, Colossians again, it also speaks of make best use of the time or make the most of every opportunity. The, the image that that kind of verb is conjuring up is of a marketplace where it's saying, in effect, buy up every opportunity. So life is like a series of never-to-be-repeated special offers that we want to buy up, an opportunity that might not come around again where actually we want to bring something of our relationship with God into a situation that may result in just the temperature of that person's life or experience or understanding of God raising a little bit. John Wesley in the 1700s must have been responsible for seeing literally thousands and thousands of people uh, come to know Christ. He was pressed to... um, conduct an experiment. And that experiment was to only share his faith, only speak to people about his faith if he felt free to do so, if he felt God was specifically kind of giving him a certain feeling that was to say, yes, you can speak to this person. He he recounts going on a train ride for 80 miles. Normally, he would strike up conversation and share something of his faith. But on this occasion, he was... Conducting this experiment, he didn't speak to anyone. He fell asleep. And he said afterwards, oh, how pleasing is all this to flesh and blood. And for us, it might, when he was saying, I'm not going to speak to anyone concerning the things of God unless my heart was free to it, that could be like a charismatic modern day equivalent of, I'm only going to speak when the Holy Spirit prompts me in some remarkable way. With red letters in the sky. And then I'll know that um, that the Holy Spirit is giving me permission to say anything about my faith. And uh, again, that would be slightly uh, missing the point. We see in 1 Peter 3 and verse 14. Um, Yes, we'll read from verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So what is he saying there? Always be prepared. So it's not necessarily learn to recite your testimony well it's interesting you should say that when I was five I grew up in a Christian family and uh, we could just go through the same sort of uh, testimony each time it's not the case of doing that it's not a case of being super cautious nor just kind of disregarding where this person is at but kind of asking ourselves the question what can I say from my own experience from my understanding of God that could help this person come to know a bit more of who the authentic God is that we know and are in relationship with. Because people don't know. People don't know the character of God. People don't know what he's like. People don't know um, that he desires relationship with people. People will have misconceptions and misunderstandings which we might spot and then be great to be prepared to give something that will explain the hope that we have, explain the joy that we have. So, so wise conduct is one thing that Paul is addressing here. He also gives a second principle, which is this, gracious speech. It says in verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, or let your conversation always be full of grace. As I've been preparing Uh, to speak today, a question has been in my mind, actually, what do outsiders expect to hear from Christians? And for people who are here right now, and you're kind of looking in on what's happened, and it might seem slightly foreign to you, the the singing that's taking place, and the things that you've heard pray out. I wonder for you, what are you expecting from Christians? My suspicion, expectation is... That for many people, when they encounter a Christian, they are expecting to encounter some form of condemnation or judgment or you're not good enough. So let's think right now. Earlier on, as, um, as the opportunity to give, as the blue buckets were passing around, I could have said right then, Turn around, speak to the person next to you, strike up conversation, just let them know who you are. There might be guests and visitors around, so you know, make them welcome. Now, what would be your reaction, what would be my reaction if speak, if sitting next to someone I had not met before, let's say I was sitting next to a guy and I introduce myself, he introduces himself and then introduces his boyfriend who sat next to him. What would my reaction be? What would I be prepared to do give what grace would um, come from my lips would i give somehow inadvertently the impression that he should go away and come back here when he has a girlfriend that's possibly the politest form of what some people in the world would be expecting to hear Not necessarily just in this building, but in conversation. Find out you're a Christian. And then they're expecting to hear the rules. They're expecting to hear um, the the judgments. And we see um, something of Paul's attitude in regards to this when he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5. Interestingly, that's the, the first letter to the Corinthians that's in the Bible. He must, however, have written to them before because it says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter, a previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Paul's concern there is the health of the church. And so we do have a responsibility within the church to be seeking to pursue God in er every area of our lives. Presumably the Corinthians there had interpreted what Paul had written previously to mean just detach yourself from the world, step back from the world, wag a finger at the world give them the impression that really they're not welcome whereas Paul is saying no 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 it is what's going on amongst us that we need to give attention to in that sense we see also when he writes to uh, the ephesians which is often regarded uh, rightly as a as a very similar or counterpart letter to um, to the one that we've been looking at colossians he says there in ephesians 4 and verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, of course, we would want to apply the sentiment of that verse when we're talking with each other, when we're in our core groups, when we're meeting together, when we're just socializing, is what can I say to build this person up in their faith, in their knowledge of God, and so on? What grace can I make known to them? But also, that can apply and and indeed should apply to relationships with outsiders so that we're not just known for people who don't swear or when the conversation starts to go a bit sour in the staff room that we walk out because we don't like to talk about that kind of stuff. Thank you. Um, It's just talking about let your speech be full of grace. There can be points and occasions where we don't just join in with everything that's going on. But at the same time, what do we add into the mix that that just becomes evidence of grace? Another phrase is used here. It says, let your speech always be gracious. It goes on to say, seasoned with salt. Salt is a preservative and an ingredient that enhances flavor. Something that makes something just brings the flavor out. I mean, if you uh, took a teaspoon of salt... It would give you a certain shock if you just had a teaspoon of salt added to a dish. It brings out the flavor. So our conversation, our speech, should add good flavor to what's going on around us. should bring kind of wit and humor as well as truth. This is a challenge, but one we have to face. That we, we do hold to uncompromising truths, things that we know from God. But we don't just want to give a teaspoon of salt in someone's face and say that will do you good. We want to bring the truth in love with grace that actually builds people up, helps people to see through us what God is like. That God, as we've been singing, is a God of wonderful, ridiculous, hilarious grace and mercy. John Piper says this on preaching on the same uh, same passage so remind yourself why the gospel tastes good enjoy Christ to be an advert for the taste by enjoying the product we this morning have already been enjoying reminding savoring the sweet taste of the grace of God in our lives God stepped down and lifted us up it's his grace that is sufficient as we've sung a number of times i come into your presence O god with nothing in my hands and yet O god you fling wide your arms to embrace me this is the grace that we know this is the grace that has penetrated into our lives this is the grace that turned us from hostile outsiders and brought us in friends with a king Friends in a wonderful kingdom where the grace of God is written over our lives, so that now and for all time we are saved, set free, not by a salvation of works, not because we cleaned ourselves up sufficiently to then be able to step into a church to hear the message of the good news. No, God reached to us. That's the message of God's wonderful grace. That's why, as we sing, as we praise, as we get together, we want to remind ourselves of this wonderful product because whether we are always aware of it or not we are representatives of this product to the entire world we are representatives of this product to our friends our family our colleagues our neighbor our neighbors if they know that we love the lord jesus if they know that we regard ourselves as In his family, Christians, if they know what we do at the weekends or on our Wednesday or Thursday night when we meet with our core groups, if they know any of that, then they must have an impression of actually, what has that done for us? What difference has it made? So let's be a people who are savouring the wonderful taste of the grace of God on our lives. It says in the Psalm, Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's keep tasting ourselves of how good the Lord's grace is. Amen. Let's pray together.